Hey, everybody. Hey, everybody. Thanks for joining this week in startups. It's an all ask Jason. And these questions are taken exclusively from the super secret, top secret, brand new this week in startup Slack. This Slack is so secret that you can only get into it by emailing Nick, N-I-C-K, at launch.co, telling him what you love about the podcast, and then he will let you in. But you have to tell him what you love, hate, and give him some suggestions on making the podcast better, and then he'll send you the secret link. 3,200 people are in there talking about startups, and we asked them for questions. And this is the best set of questions I've ever answered in this format before. And they include, how do investors look at no-code startups? If you don't know what a no-code startup is, you're going to want to really hear about that. And- is an economic crisis a good time to start a company? Yes or no? I go into the details. And how do you compensate startup advisors? And why do you even need startup advisors? I'm going to tell you about the hack of having startup advisors and how much you should pay them and for how long. Additionally, an angel investor asked us how much diligence they should do in your startup if they're only putting in $5,000. And we get into all the details of what due diligence is as well as my personal thoughts on the unemployment issues that America is facing post the COVID virus crisis. Stick with us. It's an amazing episode. This Week in Startups is brought to you by Front. Transform your corporate email into multiplayer mode so your team can increase customer experience and take action faster. Take 20% off your first year today by using the code TWIST at sign up and visit frontapp.com slash twist for more information. Clavio helps brands build relationships across any distance, delivering email marketing moments your customers will appreciate, remember, and share in good times and bad. Visit clavio.com slash twist to schedule a demo. That's K-L-A-V-I-Y-O dot com slash twist and notion looking to stay organized and in sync with your team try notion it brings all your notes docs projects and more together in one place all fully customizable get 50 percent off notions team plan when you sign up at notion.com slash twist okay our first question is from aaron he wants to know Hey, Jason, this is Aaron from Arizona, and I'm a proud member of the new Twist Slack group. I wanted to get your thoughts on a startup built on a no-code platform. At Patter, we've decided to build our entire front end in Bubble, but still leverage our existing database and APIs on AWS. This transition's allowed us to iterate on feature sets way faster and has actually eliminated the gap between product and dev. But with this in mind, how would investors view this model? Is this viable at the pre-seed or the seed stage? And then at what point would you advise a team to begin transitioning to their own code base? Would love to hear your thoughts. Thanks. Okay, fantastic question, Aaron. So your question is how do investors look at no-code startups? Let's start by defining what no-code is. There's a bunch of websites out there from Slack, Zapier, uh, Airtable, and um, of course, Bubble and Webflow. And what all these uh, services Squarespace let you do is build websites and then build the glue and the logic and the functionality behind a website. So many of the things that would normally take a developer team might be able to be done with no-code software. No-code software also sometimes referred to as visual software creation. Putting that aside, you can look it up or you can go join inside.com slash no-code. We have our own newsletter about it. It's a new trend. Most investors are not gonna know that you built it on no code. And when they do find out 
that you didn't have to hire a developer to make a website that then generated 10 or 50K a month in revenue, they're going to just be thrilled with your efficiency. As investors, we love, love when we can give somebody a dollar and they get $20 in value from it. We hate when we give somebody a dollar and they get five cents worth of value out of it. So sometimes we'll give people money as an investor and they just give it to a development shop, the money goes away and they have a product that's now static, it's not changing and uh, they don't learn anything. What's great about the no code movement is you can learn and you can build things. Most workflow can be done now with Zapier, Squarespace, Slack, some combination of these things. So it's it's pretty awesome. Now to your second question, um, which is, uh, how do you transition to your own code base, etc? Well, you know, there's some argument that you may never need to do that depending on the business. And so you're going to have to look at each business and say, at what point is no code slowing us down? And are we making so much money that we need to build things that are more sophisticated? So for example, you could build a version, I'm sure, of Postmates or Uber Eats on no code, where people just went to a simple website, they typed in what they wanted, and it was delivered. But then you might want to do some very sophisticated things that no code can't do yet, like uh, having maps and showing the driver on the map. Maybe you can do that in no code, maybe you can, I'm not sure. So you might need to also go to your own code base when you get to 10,000 or 100,000 users and the no code stuff is too slow or not as fast as it could be. It may not be slow, but it might not be lightning fast versus your competitors. So you'll figure that out as you go. But I think no code is going to create a whole new group of startups and founders who are complaining, I can't find a technical co-founder, I can't get a developer. Well, number one, you failed the test. Like if you can't even convince one developer to join your team, you're not gonna make it as an entrepreneur. Second, if you don't have the wherewithal to learn these no-code tools and build an MVP and get it in market, well then you failed the number one, the second test, which is, are you motivated enough to even build a prototype, right? There's a lot of people who talk the talk and they're like, I want to build a startup, and I'm going to use these special buzzwords, and I'm going to disintermediate, blah, blah, blah. And they don't even want to spend 100 hours or 1,000 hours becoming a developer or a no-code developer or a product designer. Guess what? That's like me wanting to play with Mark Knopfler and be in dire straits, and I don't want to play a guitar and take guitar lessons. Like, it's not going to happen. So great question, Aaron. Let's take another question. Okay, our next question is from Andre. He asks, Hello, my name is Andre, and I'm from Copenhagen, Denmark. Uh, and I'm also a member of Twist Slack. So uh, right now in this crisis, is it a good time to actually start a startup and why? Great question, Andre. Uh, and uh, love Copenhagen. Um, so much, so many great memories there of uh, getting the Schmorberg and going to uh, Tivoli Gardens and Christiana. Christiana? Sin? I don't know what's called. Um, the special park where you can get special cookies. Uh, yeah, lots of good memories. Anyway, um, and is an economic crisis a good time to start a company? Heck yes. Heck yes. Uh, and it's a great time to be an investor in companies. As I always tell people, fortunes are built in the down market. They're collected in the up market. So a down market is great for a number of reasons. The first reason is there's not a lot of competition. And uh, that means competition for customers, competition for funding dollars, and competition uh, for employees and talent. When you go to market in a peak market like we've had in Silicon Valley the last couple of years and you want to hire a developer, you, they might have 10 competing offers. 
and not just from Google and Facebook, they might have it from the next year of companies, the Airbnbs, the Slacks and the Ubers. And then they'll have also offers from the mid tier companies, maybe ones with $100 million valuations. And then you got people who raised the Series A and who jumped the fence and they want to pay somebody a huge salary. So we've seen that um, competition, then we see people moving from company to company, what will happen during a crisis like this, is people will value security and they'll be less likely to jump from company to company. And when you go buy ads on Facebook or Google, maybe you won't have as many free-flowing dollars there. So your customer acquisition costs, which might have been $150, suddenly goes down to 50. Well, if your profit margin on your product is $75, you were basically unsustainable in terms of using those ecosystems to grow, and now you're suddenly profitable. Well, that's what's going to happen. And so that is a wonderful thing. Now, it might be psychologically hard if you're weak, if you don't have uh, fortitude, if you're not self-possessed, if you're soft, you might be, you know, too depressed that things aren't growing fast enough or it's hard, it's hard to raise money. You know, it's always hard to raise money. It's hard in an up market to raise money because there's so much goddamn noise and you might have 20 competitors going after the same prize uh, and it's just hard to get on an investor's radar and it might be hard to raise money uh, in a down market because... Uh, people are investing less and there's less investors. So, you know, there's, but I would say overall, the down market is the absolute best time. And there's never a bad time to start a great company. There's never a bad time to start a great company. I always say that twice because people who are concerned or overly concerned with the timing of the market and market conditions, uh, which I'm not saying you are, you're, you're just fascinated with, uh, I think, maybe the arc of history here in my experience with it, but you can't time these things. But you can make a great product and you can solve uh, problems for individuals and customers and companies anytime. So don't don't overestimate the market. Just understand the market you're going into and the dynamics of it. Great question. Okay, our next question is from Jesse. He asks, Hey, Jason, love the show and really appreciate everything you do for the startup community. My name is Jesse and I'm the founder of EasyUp.com, a B2B marketplace that empowers salespeople to sell cars from any dealership, just like real estate agents do with houses. We started about nine months ago. We've been growing at more than 90% month over month for the last seven months. And recently we did $7,700 in net monthly revenue. Uh, we've seen some people saying that we should wait to raise money, uh, but with roughly 100,000 salespeople laid off in the last few weeks, we really want to help as many members support their families as possible. Would you recommend raising around now or continuing to grow organically and raising down the road? Thanks so much for your help and look forward to your answer. So it's a great question, Jesse. And when we talk about now, this is being recorded in April of 2020 in the middle of the COVID crisis, in case you're watching it five or 10 years later. And I think a lot of VCs and investors are very busy doing triage with their existing investments. So now is a terrible time to get on the radar of investors you don't know, because they're probably very busy. And, and that would be the argument um, that I'm seeing with uh, a lot of investors. That being said, some investors, uh, if they don't have a huge portfolio, are probably sitting there at home locked up with their headset and Zoom, and they might want to take a quick 10 or 20 minute call. So if you frame it as such, hey, I've got a startup, we grew 25% uh, on average the last three months, and this month it looks like we're going to grow 40%. So you're leading with that strength, and uh, the strongest part of your business, you're showing you're a high growth company. And you say, hey, I would love to just jump on the phone for 15 minutes and run you through this 10-slide deck and answer any questions. I've now set the context of, hey, this is going to be very lightweight and easy for you. 
and why you should meet with us now. So the timing is important. Uh, and I know you're the right person because you've invested in these companies. And I'm so confident I can do this in 10, 20 minutes on the phone in a quick Zoom. Uh, and I like those kind of emails when I get them. So I, if you want to try to raise, I don't think it's a bad idea to get on some people's radar if you do very tight um, targeted emails where you're emailing a very specific investor, you've read their blog, you follow them on social media, you know where their portfolio's at, how big their fund is, you've really researched that person and you've customized that pitch to them and you know they invest in seed stage, they invest in enterprise computing, and they invested in these two or three other companies which are similar to but not competitive with yours. If you've done that research, sure, why not fire off an email or 10? and see what happens and run a, a what I'll call a mini process, just getting on the radar of 10 investors with the same message, and see if they even open the email, see if they respond, and uh, follow up with each one two times. And you can do that over time. And now at least you've got them in the top of your pipeline. So sure, why not give it a shot. And if you if it's too soon, they're going to tell you and they're going to tell you just by not taking the meeting. Okay, great question. You crazy about efficiency like I am? Well, if you're listening to this week in startups, you are because you're running your startup and you're trying to not drown in all this email and messages, SMS. You don't want to leave customers waiting. You don't want to manage all of these conversations in single player mode. No, you want your entire team to be involved in these conversations in one place. And that's called the universal inbox. And that is front. When you think universal inbox, I want you to think about front. You can put out the fire with Front. That's right. It's a better way to manage all of your work email. Front transforms your corporate emails into a multiplayer game so your team can organize communication and take action faster. Front is a multi-channel inbox with inline at mentions, message assignments, and automation. You're going to respond faster to critical messages and you're going to give that personalized customer support experience that you've always wanted to give while not losing any important conversations. Our portfolio company look as a talent marketplace for the fashion entertainment industries and their CEO, Zach, runs his entire company off front. And when he showed this to me, I was really amazed. It's really a lightweight way to do it. Uh, by using Front, they estimate they've eliminated over 3,500 internal emails every month. He's also able to better manage his team members' workload. So he can jump in if somebody falls behind, somebody's out sick, somebody goes on vacation. Hey, you're not left on the hook. So here's your call to action. Join Spotify, HubSpot, MailChimp, and over 5,500 other businesses around the world that rely on Front to manage their email in that universal email inbox. Take 20% off your first year by using the promo code TWIST at signup. That's frontapp.com slash twist for more information. Thanks again, Front. Okay, next up is Juan. He's got a question for me. Hi, Jason. My name is Juan Juan, founder of Fanalyze, a sports search engine and analysis app for fantasy sports and sports betting. I'm a member of This Week in Startup Slack community and wanted to know how to leverage our first angel investor to close others that are interested in investing. Yeah, this is a great question, Juan. Obviously, if your um, angel investor has a portfolio of 25 companies and you know that list, you can then look and cross-reference on Crunchbase, AngelList, uh, in press releases or stories, who else has invested in that company? So now you say, okay, um, I have Jason as an angel investor. He invested in um, Steezy, the dance company, steezy.co. Oh, Dave uh, Samuel uh, from uh, Freestyle is also an investor, and Dave has invested in these 10 companies. 
uh, now you can start to work through who has Jason invested alongside and can I get an intro to them. So it's a fine thing to do. You want to make those introductions extremely personalized. And this is a theme you're going to hear from me. If you uh, are an investor, you get tons of cold emails every day. And many of them are uh, done in a mail merge kind of a way. They're emailing 100 people. They're emailing 200 people. They're not customizing it. We know this because sometimes we get, hey, first name or, uh, you know, hey, Bill. And it's like, oh, they just obviously couldn't paste this and forgot to take out the name. I, I get it. You're, you're trying to reach a lot of people. You're trying to be efficient. But I would say slow down to speed up. Slow down to speed up. The goal here is to create a relationship with the investor. One way you can do that is by increasing the number of investors and hope that they start the process of creating a relationship with you. Another way you can do it is by having a smaller list, but making a textured email, one that talks about the other person. So, hey, Jason, I saw you on this podcast with this person. You mentioned when you invested in Robinhood, they told you X about millennials and behavior. We're in a very similar situation where we're trying to get millennials to take on uh, buying their first home, just like Robinhood is trying. Now, I started thinking, wow, this person knows I invested in Robinhood. They know my thinking of why I invested in Robinhood. And they've really made a parallel to their project. Well, now I'm paying attention because the first two sentences are not about your company. They're about why I am the right investor for your company. Now, just think about that. This is like walking up to somebody who you're hoping to date and you say, uh, let me tell you about myself as opposed to, hey, uh, what are you reading? And uh, is that your favorite author? And I mean, it's creepy, but you know, it's, there's something about being interested in other people to the book, uh, which I think was Dale Carnegie, How to uh, Win Friends and Influence People. He always says, be fascinated with other people, be interested in other people. And if you're fascinated and you're interested in other people, that's going to build that bridge in terms of a deeper relationship. Then you're playing the long game. Relationships are not built over one email. They're built over many emails, many interactions, many updates. And so uh, the they did a study of who people wound up marrying and what were the variables in terms of you could track of who married who. And the top two things were the frequency um, and the proximity uh, you were to that person. So this is no shock. If you went to the same church and you saw people every Sunday and they live within 10 blocks of your house, the chances of you marrying them went way up. And this is antiquated uh, stuff in, for a modern age. But when I was growing up and I went to psychology class, they told us the two top uh, factors were frequency and proximity. And so for investing, it's going to be something similar. The frequency uh, at which you update the person, and I think the qualitative nature of those updates, if they show progress, uh, are going to determine if you build that relationship. So play the long game and make it personal because business is personal. People say, oh, it's not personal. The reason people say hey, it's not personal, it's business, it's just business, is because people take business very personally, right? So uh, make it personal and play the long game. Great question. Okay, next up is Marcel. Hey, Jason, longtime listener of This Week in Startups. I am a teacher out of the Detroit, Michigan area, and I'm reaching out to you today to ask your advice as a small private school 
how we can weather this storm during an economic downturn, especially in terms of enrollment in the fall and what we can do to push past this and become stronger than ever using technology and a startup way of thinking. Absolutely. Great job, uh, Marcel. Great question. I love that you're bringing that startup mentality to your uh, private school. So testing and experimenting and having a thesis is a great idea. So if you have a thesis and you learn something from remote work, like, hey, these type of group projects work or guest speakers work, and it's easier to get guest speakers uh, because they're remote and we don't have to have them come to the class. Well, maybe you've learned that having everybody on a computer when a guest is speaking and having them go through a presentation really engages students. Well, you could bring that back when you have the students come back to school in the fall, or you're trying to build up um, your base of uh, customers, a your enrollment, maybe parents will be like, wow, you had 10 guest speakers come into the school, and you had 10th graders um, get to do a video conference with somebody at work. And they met an angel investor, they met a salesperson, they met a UX designer, they met uh, a venture capitalist, you get the idea. And you did these, uh, you know, instead of take your daddy or take your take your daughter to work, uh, you did bring your dad or your mom to school and you did it over video conferencing. Oh my Lord, that could be amazing. Uh, and there are other things obviously that you'll learn in remote work, like people's ability to edit videos or do um, I think there's a company called Loom, or there's a bunch of these different like plugins you can get. And I've been getting a lot of these videos where people, typically young people, will instead of writing me an email, they send me a video clip and they embed it in their email. And it's like a message to Jason. And it has my picture or the logo of This Week in Startups. And then they're like, here's my product. I had this question, uh, or I'm wondering if you'd be interested in investing. And they walk me through their deck in a video, or they walk me through their product in a video with a picture in a picture of them. And it's like, wow, that's interesting. Well, that's remote technology that maybe your students could walk people through their deck and make a presentation like a sales executive or a CEO or a training program or a webinar might. So yeah, I would test all of those things and see what resonates with the children deeply and see what resonates with the person who makes the purchasing decision for private school, the parents, what resonates with them, what feeds their fears uh, or allays their fears about their kids' careers. And it's very interesting to think about what do parents really want? Parents want their kids um, to have great lives and to be secure and safe in the world. How do people have you know security and safety in the world? It's typically through having uh, the ability to be gainfully employed. Now, you want people to be a good human being. You want them to have morals, ethics. You want them to have a base education. But a lot of this uh, schoolwork was in service of a career, being smart enough to actually have a career. So I think using this time and using these techniques that are in business is brilliant. If you could then share it with uh, parents, and depending on the age, hey, your daughter came to school today and she really resonated with the small business owner who owns a candy store. And this person explained the economics of making their own candy and the economics of running a small business and how they launched their third, fourth, and fifth business. This is incredible. This could be an incredible unlock for you. And I'm sure there are 50 other ones that work equally as well. Um, and I'm just coming from my perspective. But uh, great idea. Just test it. Share it with parents. Write a report. Um, and you could really inspire your team and say, hey, we're going to try, we're going to have each teacher do one test and report back on how the test went. And any teacher can pick any test during this period. What a great idea. And then 
pick the top three ideas that resonate with parents. Awesome. Good luck with it, Marcel. Thank you for uh, watching the pod. Our next question comes from Matt. Hi, this is Matt from Taskable, and I'm a member of the This Week in Startups uh, Slack group. My question is about bringing on advisors at a very early stage. So we're three or four months in, and we know we could benefit from some outside help and perspective, particularly around product management and growth. And we wanted to bring in a few people to help us there. Uh, really, what we're wondering is what Jason thinks the structure of those should be. How many people should we bring on? What sort of compensation should we be offering them? Does it even make sense to bring someone on uh, this early in the game? Thanks, and can't wait to hear the answer. Okay, there are multiple reasons to have an advisor to your company. An advisor to your company is somebody who gives you advice but doesn't come to work every day. That's what an advisor is. They typically have many years of experience in a vertical that you need help with. So they did product design, they worked for these three famous companies, and they now act as an advisor to other companies. Uh, then there might be a sales executive. They built sales teams before. There may be somebody who's just another founder who did a great job as a founder. They could be somebody who did marketing. You get the idea. Now, why would you bring them on? There are multiple reasons. One, you might want their name associated with your company. So you might bring somebody on who, you know, you're building a video game company and they worked at Atari and ColecoVision and Activision and they're 60 years old and they've just worked for four decades in the video game industry. And when people see them in your deck, it inspires people to take a meeting with you. So that is like you're using their reputation, you're giving them equity in your company upside, so you're aligned. They have equity in your company for free, uh, in exchange, not for free, they have equity in your company in exchange for using their name in your deck. So they are anointing you, and they may give you advice. So they're anointing, and they're giving advice. There might be some folks who are not famous at all. You put them in your deck, it doesn't mean anything to anybody, or it means very little. But that advisor brings a massive amount of uh, industry knowledge. So if they were on the sales team at Salesforce selling to salespeople and they watch Salesforce grow from A to B and then from B to C, and then previously they were part of Oracle's training program and you're like, wow, they knew how Oracle and NetSuite and Salesforce all built these giant sales organizations to crush the market and uh, become dominant players. Well, you're primarily going with them for that advice on how to build a sales team. Now, how do you compensate them? Some of them will tell you what they want, but most of the time, I'll give you some, some broad strokes here. What would you pay for their services previously? So if this consultant who was going to build your sales team said, I will uh, consult with you, and it's $2,000 a month, it's $24,000 a year, but it should probably take six months. So for $12,000, I will help you build your sales team. You say to yourself, you know what? I'm spending $500,000 building a sales team. $12,000 is a drop in the bucket. If this person helps me avoid one or two mistakes and gets me two or three wins, it's easily worth the $12,000 to put them on retainer. So you say to them, instead of $12,000, how about I pay you $6,000 and then I will give you um, $10,000 in equity, double the amount of the cash comp, right? $12,000 in equity. And you can do a hybrid system like that. So I would really uh, detail what is expected from them every month in terms of hours and in bullet points. I want you to come to the office uh, and run us through our marketing materials for two hours every month. I want you to train new salespeople. And uh, I want you to look at the resumes and do the final interviews with people. I expect it's going to be six hours a month. It's 36 hours. I know you get paid $200 an hour or you get paid $300 an hour. So it's $10,000 in hourly fees. I'll give you five and five, 5,000 equity, 5,000 cash. So you should really define it more clearly. Now with somebody who's like, 
this highfalutin, you know, four decades in the video game industry, you're, they're not really providing like an hourly quantifiable service for you. You're just going to give them 50 basis points, half a percent, maybe 1%, uh, maybe you give them 35%, and you do it over two years and you vest it monthly and it can be canceled at any time by either party. And, and that's a nice way to do it. So uh, I don't want you to spend like too much time on it. But if you're a first time entrepreneur and you get four of those in your deck, and then I see you know, Josh Williams, a designer we've worked with who did go Walla and worked at Facebook and uh, the last guide. And I, I might be like, you know what? I really like the idea that Josh is involved in your startup. So and Josh recently uh, introduced me to somebody who was an advisor to and uh, who was using him for his design services. So it can be a very quick way to get meetings uh, and to validate your startup and become anointed. So it's not the entirety of what you should be doing, but there's really no downside. If you get, if you were to, give 2% of your company away to five advisors and one of them got you your series A or one of them got you in the room for your seed or got you into Y Combinator or Techstars or Launch Accelerator, man, that's going to be amazing for you. So great job. In uncertain times, supporting your community and growing relationships with your customers is a strategy that will be appreciated, remembered, and of course, shared in good times and bad, open and empathetic communication with your customers is key. Email is and always will be the one best channel for delivering these communications. Email marketing is one of Klaviyo's core offerings. And when you leverage personalization driven by a 360 degree view of the customer, those emails will feel even more relevant, fostering stronger relationships. Klaviyo truly understands how challenging it is for each and every entrepreneur to get their business off the ground, let alone navigate such trying times. If you're feeling overwhelmed, with growing your business, especially in this climate, you're not alone. And Clavio is here to help brands build relationships across any distance. So here is your call to action. You're going to be able to create meaningful, memorable email marketing moments that last a lifetime. Just visit Clavio.com slash twist to schedule a demo. That's K-L-A-V-I-Y-O.com slash twist. K-L-A-V-I-Y-O.com slash twist. Clavio.com slash twist. Thanks again for supporting the pod. Okay, next up is Mike. He's got a question for me. Hi, Jason. Big fan of your work. Um, this is Mike, Mike Saraswat. I'm the founder and CEO of Ecstasy, a storytelling content and advertising agency based in London. Um, we work with a lot of startups and other brands to help them grow. Uh, my question to you is, uh, what percentage of a brand's total annual budget should a brand spend on brand marketing? And specifically on acquisition-based paid advertising. And if you think these percentages of total budget should change based on the life cycle of the brand uh, or, or startup, um, then please say so. Thank you. Okay, Mike, great question. First and foremost, you should have a great product that is so good that it markets itself. In other words, the net promoter score is so high that people will tell other people about it. If you don't have a product that good, you probably don't need to start this marketing or start thinking about what percentage you're going to spend on marketing. First and foremost, have a product that's so good, people tell each other about it. And then once you have that, we can have a discussion about, do you want to do marketing? What type of marketing? So there is marketing that is content marketing. For example, this podcast. And this podcast helps me meet founders who I then invest in or come to the Launch Accelerator. You all know that. I talk about it all the time on the podcast. 
other people might make videos. Uh, so there's a company called Wistia. Uh, they used to sponsor the podcast. In fact, really great company. I missed on investing and tried to invest, couldn't. Um, and they make uh, content about their customers and themselves all the time because they're a video startup. They're kind of like a YouTube white label, um, white label YouTube for doing corporate video. And they make content and that's their marketing, right? So that's content marketing, content marketing, you're not spending on ads, but you're spending on making the content. Um, and it really is dependent on the lifetime value and the margin. Some people, they do very well with uh, spending money um, in order to get subscribers. So if you have a subscription based business, you can spend a lot more money because you might s have subscribers last six months, 12 months, 24 months, five years even. So you can onboard somebody at a very high price. So it is very dependent on the company. There are companies that make very simple products like a pillow, uh, or a bed. Um, and they are just doing arbitrage, they're figuring out how much money they spend on uh, platforms like Google and Facebook and those ad ecosystems, and then what their margin is and, the, and they and they the majority of their spend is that there are other people like com.com, uh, or Fitbot and Steezy in our portfolio. Uh, they're also subscription services, and they can spend less money maybe. Um, and I think you get the idea. So there is no one number. And there are some companies like Apple, which don't need to spend money on marketing, but they do it. Why? Why does Apple spend all that money on marketing? In some ways, I think it's because they want to confirm with their existing customers that their existing customers are awesome. In other words, they're selling this like lifestyle to their existing customers to keep them in the fold and make them feel good and to make their employees feel good. You drive up and down the 101 freeway here in uh, the Bay Area and you see these Apple ads shot on the Apple. Um, those are for the employees or potential employees of Apple as much as they are for customers. And they just kind of make you feel good about being an Apple customer. So there's all different reasons to do it. And if you look at somebody like Tesla, they do zero. But Elon's never believed in spending money on marketing. He's just thought, let's just make a great product. That's it. They had an affiliate program for a while. I think he really liked having that. And you saw the affiliates were, you know, going crazy. People put up billboards, hey, buy the Model 3. And, and in fact, those, those programs, I think, went to Supernova that they had to discontinue or tweak them because the, the people who were doing them, uh, some of them, there was like $5,000 credit for their affiliate program towards a Roadster 2, which is a quarter million dollar car. And I think people bought ads, like consumers bought ads to promote their affiliate links. And somebody, I think, got two cars, like somebody with a YouTube channel that was at scale, got so many people deposited for the Model 3 that they had two Tesla Roadsters on uh, account. So there's no specific number. What I would like you to do is make a great product, focus on that first. And then second, understand your customer acquisition cost, the CAC, and understand the lifetime value. And as you think you can add high quality customers that don't churn to your product, then do it. This is the other fallacy. People start to have great success spending $10,000 a month on ads and they pop it up to 100,000. And then all of a sudden half the, the, the number of the customer churn goes way up. Well, you know what happened? They started marketing a product to people who really didn't need it. Those people bought it because the marketing was so good. And then they churned. And they were like, ah, I don't really need this product. So all of a sudden, churn goes up massively because you went against the cardinal rule of knowing who your customer is and targeting that ideal customer profile. So be careful that you don't overdo it on marketing. Uh, I would say, uh, you know, low 
double digits is where most companies wind up. They spend 10, 20, 30% on marketing, something in that range if I had to pick a number for Series A, Series B companies. But great job. Okay, next up, we got a question from Peter. Hi, this is Peter from Seattle. How much due diligence is it appropriate for a small angel to do, say writing a check for 5,000 or less? I'm happy to do the work, but it seems inappropriate to expect founders to put a lot of time into the process, say with speaking to them for more than a few minutes, speaking with customers, or asking them to provide me with specific documents. What do you think? Great question. If you're an angel investor writing small checks, you're probably doing it through a syndicate. So you want to talk to the syndicate lead about what diligence they did. And you could say, hey, can you just give me an overview of what diligence you did? And they might be able to share some of that with you with permission from uh, the founders. But again, if you're only putting in 5k, you're kind of taking a flyer. It's a small amount of money, you might be if it's a 500k round, you're 1% of it. It's a 5 million round, you're 10 basis points of it, you're you're one one thousandth of it. So, you know, you don't really, uh, you should be happy that you were able to get in for that tiny check. There are things you can do in diligence that don't require you to bother the founder, like you can go read the reviews in the app store, you can use the product yourself, you can type in the name of the product and alternative. So if you want, if you were considering investing in calm, you might say, calm alternatives or meditation apps and you might go look at reviews of that company or their competitor you might find headspace or sam harris's waking up app and etc so i think doing your own due diligence that doesn't require you as you're saying to you know make a founder do a massive amount of diligence uh and a massive amount of work for a tiny amount of reward the 5k investment is uh, appropriate so you're going to scale the diligence to the risk you're going to scale the diligence um, to the opportunity. If you were putting in $50 million, like you're going to, you know, if you're a Masayoshi-san and you're SoftBank and you're putting in $10 million, $5 billion, you might have three people working with the CFO at Uber's office or at WeWork. You might have employees embedded over there for six months working on that deal to really work on the model. And uh, when you're writing a 2K check or a 5K check into a syndicate or buying a public stock, if you're buying 5K in Apple, yeah, you're just kind of reading the public documents. You don't get to meet with management. When you start putting 500 million into a company, yeah, you're meeting with management. So yeah, just right size it. And um, if you really are concerned that you're not doing enough diligence, well, then invest in later stage companies because then you know more diligence has been done. So when you invest in a company that's worth $5 million in this example, and they have five employees, the reason you're able to get in that deal and the reason... The company's only valued at $5 million is because, you know, listen, there's a lot of things that ha haven't been done yet. There's a long list of things that would not pass the diligence required for an IPO or for a Series A or Series B. Thus, it's the opportunity. You get a lower valuation for taking on much more risk. You could do second market uh, type services and buy secondary shares in SpaceX, in Airbnb, in com.com, in Robinhood, in any of these private companies, you can go to the secondary market and buy shares uh, from employees and other investors who are early on. And then you can feel safer. But if you're angel investing, you know very well that 70 or 80% of the bets you make will go to zero. The good news is, you know exactly how much you're going to lose. You're going to lose the 5000 You can't lose 50000 on a $5,000 angel investment. You can lose 5000 Now, what can you make? Well, if it goes 20x or 200x, uh, which can happen, especially if you get to 30, 40, 50 investments, you have a chance of an outlier uh, because you have, uh, if you're inventing, investing in venture scale companies, most people would say 
30, 40, 50 companies is where you start having enough diversification for the power law to come into effect. That's what I would focus on as well. So just understand what game you're playing. You know, you're playing a high risk game with low dollar amounts. So, uh, and, and another way to diligence it is who are the other investors in the round using the product, uh, talking to a customer kind of hard, unless it's a very popular product and you could just put a tweet out and say, Hey, does anybody use com.com for meditation? Does anybody use Robinhood? I would love to talk to you. DM me. I'll give you a $25 gift card. Not a bad idea, right? $25 gift card. You get three people who use Robinhood to talk to you on the phone. I like that idea. So uh, right size, your diligence. Great question, Peter. Hey, I've got a lot going on here at my investment company launch. We do this week in startups. We do the launch accelerator. We do founder university. We've got a lot of projects going on and we need to keep them organized. And we had all this information in email and documents and spreadsheets just everywhere. And everybody was asking in our chat room, Where's this document? Does anybody know this? The same questions over and over again, the same search for documents. Well, then we started using a little program called Notion. Now, if you're in the know, you know about Notion, N-O-T-I-O-N. It's one tool that does many jobs really well. You can organize all your notes and documents and projects and workflows in one spot. So you never have to worry about where that information is or if you lost it. And it's got all the revision histories and all these crazy, awesome features. You can store meeting notes, We track our deal flow, and we even track our time spent throughout the day, all customized to our exact preferences. Notion is so customizable that you're going to love it. For a startup, it's a no-brainer because you can build your wiki, manage projects, create docs, and take notes all in the same place. Thousands of startups are already using Notion to be more efficient. That's even more important now because everybody's working remote. You know that. So here is your simple call to action. Notion is offering 50% off their team plan for your first, what, year? Just by signing up at notion.com slash twist. Notion, N-O-T-I-O-N dot com slash T-W-I-S-T. Once you try it, you'll be surprised how much it will do for you. And that's one of the great things about this product is, you know, if you're paying for the team's plan, you get a 50% off here. You can use it for many different functions inside your company. Thanks to Notion for making great software and for supporting independent media like This Week in Startups. Let's get back to this amazing program. Okay, next up, a question from Talha. Hi, Jason. My name is Talha. Um, so my question is, given the current economic slowdown, uh, what is what would be the impact of this slowdown on cloud kitchens as well as the food delivery services? That's question one. Question number two is, a lot of food delivery services are actually investing in cloud kitchens. Uh, how do you see this going forward? Would this become a norm or would the cloud kitchens and the food delivery services would only operate within their own niche? Because essentially cloud kitchens are more of a real estate business than a food tech uh, play. But delivery services are purely food tech. So what are your thoughts on that? So a uh, great question. And in fact, I'm ordering from cloud kitchens a bel campo burger here in san francisco uh while i'm taping the show and i'm going to go pick it up at the cloud kitchens because it happens to be across the street from our offices cloud kitchens for people who don't know are a shared kitchen space so imagine ten thousand or twenty thousand square feet and instead of having one restaurant in that space you have 30 different brands in one space 
and you might have 10 cooking stations. So one small business might have a brand for hamburgers. They might have an egg brand to make egg sandwiches in the morning, and they might have a juice business to make smoothies. And then they get listed on Uber Eats or Postmates or other places as three different brands, but they're only using a, you know 500 square feet or 1,000 square feet, and they're sharing the same refrigerator and they might be sharing the same source of salt and they can just, you know, get that from the pantry. This makes it wildly efficient and the drivers only have to go to one location. So you could have literally 30 restaurants in the space that one restaurant would have previously been located, 30 different brands, and the drivers only have to go to one space. So you can start to add up why this is incredibly powerful. And this will be um, one of these businesses that are anti-fragile during a pandemic more people want to order food in because they don't want to leave their house. And during uh, a crisis uh, or an economic downturn, are people going to stop eating? No, they're going to keep eating. And so will they go out to a fancy restaurant? Maybe that's where they make the cut. And then maybe they do more delivery and pickup of affordable food from these cloud kitchens. And these cloud kitchens are going to be able to do things more efficiently. So they're going to be ginormous and huge. And they will be a game changer, I believe. Um, they're already a game changer. And much like the pandemic uh, that we're currently in has driven people to try Zoom for the first time or maybe had them double down on Slack, I was sitting at home losing my mind because all I want to do is talk to people and go out and do things. And I'm literally going insane. I, I mean, I would be the prisoner who was trying to break out of jail every week. Like every hour I've spent in jail, uh, in this pandemic, I've been thinking about how to get out of it. Uh, and one of the ways to get out of it is to pop up Zoom uh, or to start a Slack. So I started a Slack, a secret one for our syndicate, a secret one for seed funds, and then a public one uh, for This Week in Startups, which we started four years ago. I realized the start date on that was 2016. We never used it. Uh, and if you want to join the super secret This Week in Startups group, you can't do it publicly. You just have to email nick at launch.co and he'll send you the uh, link. And I think there's 3,200 people in there as of today. It's really going well. I just ask anybody who's in there, please don't spam it with marketing. It's a place for conversations about startups and this podcast. That's it. It's not there for you as the top of the funnel to sell your goddamn ebook. Ban like three people with these goddamn ebooks. Honestly, seriously, ebooks. Ugh. So this is a forcing function. People are forced to stay at home, so they're forced to install Uber Eats uh, or Postmates or DoorDash. They're forced to put their credit card in. Now everybody has it on their uh, phones and they've tried it and they've loved it. And they know how it works. They know how to order. They know how to rate stuff. They know which things travel well, which things don't. So I think it'll be a lasting deep impact going forward. We are deeply going to be impacted by this quarantine and people who didn't know how to use Instacart or Amazon Prime or... Uh, good eggs here in the bay like all of these things bel campo delivers as well all of these different delivery services are popping up and actually i got an email this was the most interesting one for me a person who sells fish to restaurants a distributor still has all their fish they still have the fish coming in from suppliers but they don't have restaurants they emailed uh the people who own the restaurants and said hey would you mind emailing folks that they can order direct from us and now I have the ability, and we haven't done it yet, but we're about to, to order from the same person that the restaurants I go to order their fish from. So all this creativity comes out of a crisis like this. 
in Cloud Kitchens with Travis uh, from uh, and Diego, uh, Travis formerly of Uber, and Diego are working on is going to be huge. It's going to be a ginormous business. And I don't worry about categorizing the business. I know you're like, hey, it's really a real estate business, it's really this type of business. It's a business. It's a business that will have a great margin. It's a business uh, that delights customers, and it's not going away. In fact, I think it's going to become uh, the standard. And then you have to think about the second order effect. If we, if, we don't, if we have half as many restaurants, uh, what, is, what do we do with all that space? Well, we're going to recapture all that space. When I lived in New York, a lot of people in Tribeca, there were these storefronts, and the first front of the storefronts was for their architecture business, and the back was where they lived because there was too many storefronts. We're going to reclaim all of these storefronts. They're going to become office spaces or neighborlies, or people are going to start living in them again. So this is going to be very interesting to watch uh, what happens to all that real estate. So I'd be short commercial real estate. I would be long cloud kitchens. Great question. Okay, our next question comes from the super secret. This week in Startup Slack Room, you can get into that by emailing producer Nick. He loves to hear from you. Nick at launch.co. Tell him what you think of the show and ask him for a secret invite. Give it, but you got to give a little feedback on the show. And he asks, J. Cal. Hey, listen, Ryan, my friends call me J. Cal. My, and so you can call me J. Cal. Thoughts on solving unemployment over the coming months, especially with the 10% of the workforce being put out of work or furloughed over the past few weeks. What new startups need to emerge and thrive? Great question, Ryan. It's going to be very hard for us to parse, let's say, 10 million, and ultimately if 20 million people are uh, lose their jobs. Of those 20 million, I am sure a certain number of them are companies that had no choice but to furlough, temporarily uh, fire individuals who they plan on hiring back. What percentage will that be? Will it be 30, 40, or 50%? Who knows? I'm going to pick a number here just so we can have an intellectual argument or an intellectual discussion and debate this. Let's say 35% of them, about a third, are going to get their jobs back. Okay, and let's say the total number becomes 20 million. So we're taking out 7 million. We still got 14 million left to deal with. Of those 14 million, where will they work? Well, the gig economy was this great safety net. I know people were complaining about it, but gig work is better than unemployment in my mind. It gives people purpose, it gives them control of their life, they can pick the number of hours, they can carry forward that gig work, even if they get a full-time job later, and it creates a natural tension with full-time employers. And that's the thing that a lot of the precious snowflakes on social media who complain about the gig economy are missing. The reason we had record low unemployment before this was because the gig economy gave people the ability to say to Walmart, Apple stores, Starbucks, and other retail locations, uh, you know what? I know you want me to work the six-hour shift. You want me to drag my ass in for an hour and a half from the suburbs into the city to work at your Starbucks and be on the train. And So really, I'm working six hours, but I'm commuting another two, so I've got to divide whatever I make with you by a third to include my commute. And I could have just jumped in my car and done Lyft or Uber or DoorDash or Postmates, and I could have done it on demand and maybe done a couple hours here when it was high demand. I'd rather do that. And you know what happened? Wages increased. Oh, lo and behold, competition for workers, the free market creates a marketplace. And that same person who would have been a greeter or a barista uh, at Walmart or Starbucks now is doing Uber, or maybe they have their extra shed in their backyard set up as a as an Airbnb, or maybe they have an extra bedroom as an Airbnb, or maybe they're working for a management company that's doing Airbnb. All of that creates competition for workers. That's why we had record unemployment. 
the gig economy was letting people set their own schedules, pick two or three different employers, and be beholden to none. That was the beauty of it, that a lot of the snowflakes were missing. Everybody wants to defend this, you know, the, 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 the people who are at the beginning of their careers, the people who are the up-and-comers. They want to defend them, all these liberals, you know, crazy far-left liberals who are just as crazy as the far-right, as far as I'm concerned. Um, and I, I'm not a right-winger, as you all know. Uh, but just taking those two hysterical groups of people, the reality is a free market works. And having some controls is great. But the free market really does work. Everybody thought we would have massive unemployment because of automation, and we had the opposite in this country. If you let entrepreneurs create these innovative products and services, like Airbnb, which has created more small businesses probably than anybody, or Uber and Lyft and DoorDash, it's created like a ton, and, and now Cloud Kitchens. These are going to create tons of entrepreneurial opportunities and give people the ability to say, screw you. I'm not coming to your nine to five, 40 hour week job. I'm going to be a better parent and I'm going to work nights and weekends and cherry pick the best shifts and I'll do on demand and I'll lower my costs. I don't have to put on a suit every day. I don't have to do 15, 20 hours of commuting a week. And so I love the free market. I think we're going to get back um, to business and the companies that went out of business, let's say restaurants, what we might see is that the bottom half of restaurants were not profitable or they were holding on and they were barely break even. Okay, let's say um, that half goes out of business. The stronger restaurants might be more profitable. They might double in size. It's not like people are going to stop going to restaurants. I don't actually buy that. It's not like people are going to stop eating food. I don't buy that either. So I think the stronger companies will then hire from the weaker companies. And I think that's going to be true for startups and tech as well. You'll see, you know, a the number of startups that would normally die in a year might double this year. So we might see an acceleration and some good companies might run out of money because they just timed it poorly. They're fundraising um, and they got a bad beat. But it might be that the companies that were destined to fail anyway just failed quicker. Therefore, the companies that were strong got to hire those people. So that's one of the things that I think could happen. I don't, I don't think it magically all goes away. There is a process by which people go back to work. But I think just like people overestimated the number of deaths, the death rate of this, um, and they overreacted, and that has resulted in a lower death rate. So overreacting sometimes is good to a crisis. You, you know, it's like putting out a fire, like you probably want to use more water than less. You're not trying to conserve water when you're putting out a fire. We're not trying to conserve, uh, you know, people's freedom to go around cities in a, in a, in a pandemic. We'd rather people stayed at home who didn't need to and less people died. The same thing is true of the economy. We're going to put more stimulus in than we need. That's my guess. My best guess for people who want to cancel me on social media, my best guess, guess, estimate is we have massively overreacted in quarantine and massively overreacted in stimulus. And in both of those cases, that means the future will be bright. So we did the right thing which sometimes you don't get credit for overreacting. We're going to overreact. We're going to give so many people stimulus, so many people loans, so many people unemployment, PP, um, PPP, and all these other loans that are going on. I think they're going to be, we're going to be sitting here six months from now, 12 months from now saying, oh my God, we, we overreacted to this whole thing. And that's a good thing because it would have been much worse if we didn't react and we had a million people die, or we didn't react with the stimulus, and we had a 20 
million or 30 million people permanently out of work, which is really dangerous for society. So I am super optimistic and I think entrepreneurs are going to lead us out of this.